Welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. I'm Rowan. And I'm Blue. And we're going to talk about game design because we think it's cool and important. We're going to invert our formula today. Usually we talk about five games about a given topic, but this time we're doing five topics from a single game. And as you may have guessed from the title, we are talking about Final Fantasy VIII. Final Fantasy VIII is a game that I think is very important to both of us and that we both love very deeply. Me, I first played it back when it was new and it was a game that I played over and over and over again. And in my first playthrough, I got so many hours into it that the timer went red, which it does when it hits 99 hours and 59 minutes, which is a long time to spend on a game that took me much less time to finish this time round. How about yourself? Yeah, it's definitely not a game that should take you hundreds of hours. It's a reasonably paced Final Fantasy, which, what, puts it at an average of maybe 40 to 60 hours in general? Not even that. Yeah, possibly less. It, it's really well-paced, honestly. Yeah, if you just do the things. It's not a challenge to finish it in about 20 or 30 hours. And so with that said, I also turned the timer red. I definitely took my time with it, explored quite a bit of its side quests and stuff, and just actually left it on for a couple of exploits that require time. So like that's how I got to red time. It was my second real game like i remember distinctly that there was a game that i had played before that could not tell you what it is pretty sure it was a random pc title or something but this was the reason i got a ps1 was to play final fantasy 8 yeah and it absolutely is just really core to a lot of my gaming experiences this is not the first rpg i played but it's the first rpg that i fell in love with like i'd played a bit of seven beforehand but i mostly sort of would play through midgar and get stuck and then play a save file that i got from my neighbor that had all the mini games unlocked i played a kind of unusual rpg on the mega drive called rings of power which is by naughty dog of all companies but this is the first rpg that was my rpg that i was good at and that i understood except i didn't really understand it but i thought i did as a child so it's very important to us and it's beloved by both of us but the general impression that 8 has particularly in a lot of the western world english-speaking world is that it's very divisive a lot of people think that it's too complicated they don't like the systems in play the story's a bit silly they might say there's just a lot of very negative opinions towards the game on the whole but Whenever you talk about the game online nowadays, I feel a lot of people come out and say it didn't deserve the hate it got. People feel very positive about it online. And it's also a weird place for the game to be in. Square Enix themselves tend to mostly ignore its existence. In fact, very recently when they announced a whole bunch of Final Fantasy games coming to the Switch and Xbox One, Final Fantasy VIII was the only major game that was missing in this whole collection of remasters and ports that already have versions out at the moment. It's really quite unfortunate. And we'll talk a bit about why we don't think it needs or deserves that kind of stigma throughout this episode, which is why we're doing this. We sent out a tweet before the episode just asking people's thoughts and opinions, and we're going to reference some of these tweets throughout the show as it's relevant. And on this note, we had a message from Morning Song, which is, it's a game I feel kind of conflicted over. It never really clicked for me, but I never understood the hate it got later on. 
which I think is something that, yeah, we both feel matches up with our experiences of the game. And so that seems like a sensible place to kick this off. So our first section is going to be one of the areas that a lot of people find a lot of problems with in the game. We're going to touch and talk about the story of Final Fantasy VIII. And so when we're talking about story here, we're going to hit a couple of the beats that are often most criticized uh, within the game. There is a lot to digest and break down throughout the entire game itself. Every kind of story beat as you go from start to finish has something worth saying about it. It's a pretty decently set up game, but a lot of the criticisms leveled at the story are quite fair and valid. So we're going to only touch a couple of them because we don't have time to go through everything. And this is your fair warning, early spoiler alert. If you want to experience the game for the first time and you haven't decided to do so after nearly 20 years already, this is your chance to back out. Although it's worth saying that the points that we're probably going to spoil are probably ones that you've already had spoiled if you know anything about this game. We'll have a timestamp if you want to skip this section so that you can just skip it entirely and not lose the story. Okay, so the first beat that I want to hit is there is a moment in the game where you arrive at this place called Trabia Garden. And it, it is a moment of failure. You have failed to save this place. You go to this institution at a point where it's been missile struck you literally fail and watch the missiles fly off into the sky and then you just kind of wander over and get to witness the aftermath of it and it's important to note that it's one of the character's home locations and she has spent the entire game hyping up this place and it being like an important part of her life and the festival the school had being really important and things and now this is the first time you're all seeing it and it's nothing yeah, it's a somber moment. It's a moment where that character, Selfie, had taken it upon herself to lead the team that went to stop the missiles, and it just didn't work out. And it's probably the only part of the game that, and this is a game that's explicitly about characters who are trained as mercenary type characters that deals with like the atrocities of war. It's the closest the game comes to that, which is not very close at all, but... No, they they definitely deal with it on a very personal level, if at all. And yes, absolutely, one of the criticisms that has landed squarely on this section specifically is that it is much worse of a situation that doesn't get quite the gravitas that it deserves, I guess. Yeah, it is... Almost entirely skipped over how horrific this situation is. And it devolves quickly into a boo-hoo, poor me, which is not horrible, right? Like, if you take the situation and you try to look at it through a personal lens and try to unpack how this affected a specific character, that wouldn't be that bad of a way to handle the situation. But the fact is that you don't actually get to see a lot of the internal conflict that Selfie would have been going through. You just kind of see her wander off and, you know, sit by herself for a while. There's not much that is supposed to indicate to you what is going through her mind at that point. And the fact that she's also a character who just always puts on a happy front means that even what the game would show you would be more or less how she's been acting anyway. And so we're coming up to what I want to really talk about here. So once she walks off and mopes, the rest of the crew eventually work their way towards her. And then they have this weird group chat discussion moment 
and it suddenly revealed that, hey, look, everyone here knew each other. They all grew up in the same orphanage. They're all childhood friends. Is that, is that about how this goes? And they all have amnesia about it, except for Renoa, who wasn't part of the group. Yeah, so except for Renoa, who wasn't there at all, everyone used to know each other. And then they just forgot, and they had amnesia. That, that's right, right? I did recount that correctly. It has been a while since I played this. Yeah, they all, well, other than Irvine. Irvine is the only character who didn't forget these yeah, things. Yeah, but he kind of did and kind of didn't. Like, he was unsure enough of his memories that he didn't want to just bring it up with them. I think the point that he makes is that no one else seemed to remember. He was playing it cool because no one else. And he didn't want to, like, raise it. Because everyone else didn't seem to remember, he then wasn't sure. Yeah. Is how I read it, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But basic point of this is amnesia. And that's a massive criticism to this game. Everyone is like, amnesia is so lazy. They did this here. And, and I want to really address that. So my first counterpoint to this is amnesia is known as a lazy trope of you know oh we'll just stick amnesia to make this character interesting that absolutely can be a trope and that absolutely can be overused i think that as a trope amnesia to create fish out of water characters so that the audience has a an empathizing and a sympathizing point so that we have reason to get exposition is actually quite decent if done correctly so amnesia as a trope is not bad but further from that, I want to also point out that this was not amnesia as that specific trope. This was amnesia as a plot twist because none of our characters are fish out of water characters that we live through, that we can put ourselves in the shoes of, which is part of the problems of the game. The world is very fully formed and all of our characters like just fit and belong in this world already. So we don't have a great proxy. Squall is very standoffish as a character, and that makes him, in occasion, very difficult to empathize with. So amnesia in this particular instance was a storytelling tool, was a plot twist, and actually is a pretty decent one, except that the game doesn't really establish it very well. So there is a reason why they all have amnesia, in theory, which is that the summons that you click in the game, Guardian Forces, you equip them, you junction them to your characters, and the... The narrative thing that you are doing is apparently like they are taking up space in your brain is how they sort of describe it. Yep. And that takes away from your memory a little bit. And apparently it's sort of, and characters talk about it as if it's a known thing that it's controversial that Balan Garden, where most of the characters are from, use this thing. That is this dangerous thing. And that the garden that Irvine is from doesn't use it. And he started to forget some things now that he started using them like the other characters. But the game doesn't establish this outside of characters mentioning it during this cutscene. And one or two very offhand comments that you can find from NPCs. So it kind of works as a plot twist on paper. But one of the things that needs to happen for a plot twist to really make sense and to have impact is for you to foreshadow it. And while there is foreshadowing, it's really very weak. It doesn't really... Your first impulse on finding this out is, really? That's what you're going with? As opposed to, oh no, really? So you really miss a an important beat there in terms of the story delivery because of the lack of foreshadowing. Yeah, like a good plot twist, you have to, when you play it through the second time, be like, oh, I see where this is going, or I see how we got to there. In this case, it just kind of leaves you with this. I will say, 
When I first played this game, I actually thought this was a really fun could twist. Admittedly, I hadn't dealt with a lot of amnesia plots before, but when I played, I was like, wow, they all knew each other. Isn't that cool and crazy? Which probably says more about me when I was 12 than it does about any of this, but... There's a fairly ranty discussion. I say ranty because it would mostly be me rambling about it. I could have about what I think one of the major themes of the game is. To try to keep this brief because we still have a lot to cover... There is something to be said about this amnesia plot twist in that it ties into one of the themes of the game that I think is there, which is about fate and the immutability of it. And so the amnesia is kind of this nice way to get characters to meet each other for the first time, but still have them already know each other, like tie in that way to kind of... They were destined to be a group. Yeah, drive home the inevitability of, you know, even if you forget each other, you are here now together. And yeah, going forward from here, it did feel more of a cohesive group as opposed to a random string of encounters that just led you, you know, that just made people follow each other because that's what it feels like up until this point. All right. So without uh, that's that's a whole topic for another time. We may find time for that in the future, but let's move forward. That's one of the huge problems with the game is that it doesn't. You had a second huge problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We will cover that. One of the criticisms is just how it doesn't deal with these big important moments very well and you know foreshadowing is one of them so a second really criticized moment in the game is the end of disc two and the beginning of disc actually it's literally the beginning of disc three leading on from the end as a consequence of the fight at the end of disc two one of your party members renoa the major love interest is bedridden she was hurt during the last attack the last fight in this too and the main character squall is kind of lost and i want to direct this conversation to your personal experience with the game at this point you also had a similar experience like squall is that correct that's right so i talked about at the start that i got the clock up to 99 hours and 59 minutes the maximum time and most of that time was spent trying to work out what to do after the start of disc three. Renoa was gone. I didn't know how to heal her because she was in this coma-like situation. And I went everywhere in the world. I did every bit of side content possible at this point, just trying to find something to latch onto. And the solution is to go back to this area that's established itself as an important hub for you and go and check in on Renoa. And then you'll sort of start the next big moment. But it took me dozens of hours of doing everything else the game had to offer to even get there. I felt lost, like Squall felt lost, which is a very interesting and probably not so deliberate um, thing to do. The game actually guides you very well to going to Fisherman's Horizon, the place you need to go, and to check in on Renoa. I just didn't. (laughs) Yeah, but it's also kind of not super well established, right? Because... You will check in on Renoa while you're exploring because your tool for exploration at this point is driving a school around. Not not a school bus, a school. Which is just one of the weird things to this whole story. Yeah, Final Fantasy it has quirks. That's the <laughs> nice way to just put this real quick. And you can check in on Renoa because she's just in the infirmary in the school at this point in Balan Garden. And do you get a do you actually get a prompt that tells you to go to Fisherman's Horizon from there? Um not from her but yeah not from checking in right from memory you don't get one from that but you do get one like when you boot up and some character suggests in very loose text maybe you should go here it i can see why you don't make that connection like your primary thing in your head is to get renoa back on her feet to 
help her. And Fisherman's Horizon isn't, it's not clear why it's relevant. Yeah, like, it's not a hospital. And the goal, because the reason why you go to Fisherman's Horizon to do this is because you want to go to the sci-fi country Esther. And you walk there. <laughs> and I hadn't made this connection that Fisherman's Horizon was the place to get to Esther and such. But anyway, that's more a lack of signposting and my lack of reading the signposts. What about the narrative side did you want to talk about with this moment? The narrative impact of this moment is, I guess there's a small detour to take here in that most of the characters in this game, barring Squall and Renoa as the primary protagonists, like they have definitely the most character and personality, but basically everyone else has no personality or they're 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 one point characters as you aptly described yes. them. they have single characteristics that define everything about them yeah and there is something to be said about how that's done that it, the game is actually quite efficient with how they're able to convey this one point of character through very brief interactions with the characters and primarily through the intro cutscenes that you're given with these characters so every important character is introduced via a cgi cutscene it's only about five or ten seconds long at most yeah for each one and you get so much character from each of them but in contrast to this squall and renoa actually have lots of thoughts and lots of feelings and emotions and opinions about different things throughout the story because we experience the story primarily through their their eyes their lens and so this is a defining moment that is criticized for people because by people because they don't quite relate to what Squall does here. One of the comments we got actually on Twitter was from Valentine, who thought that actually Squall was very relatable as an angsty teen and is still relatable as a tired millennial. Yeah. So I think that maybe time has been kind because people now view Squall as being a dumb angsty teen, which he is. And this is very much a dumb angsty teen thing to do, who's just been given a bad situation and control over his school and where it goes. So to contextualize this, Squall is not described and set up as someone who was groomed for greatness. He just was. In fact, he was at the brink of failing one of his tests, I believe. Yes, Squall is not a standout student in many ways. Yeah, he, he was never an exemplar. But through the circumstances of the game, which further leads me on to fate and destiny as one of the core themes, he finds himself in charge of not just this school, but this school that trains mercenaries. You know, the, the school that trains effectively soldiers being thrust into this random war that appeared out of nowhere that no one was prepared for. He was thrust into this position of leadership. For the purpose of fighting the sorceress that raised him and his friends as children, because fate. Fate, yeah, absolutely. Everything is neatly tied together. Some people definitely criticize that as like convenient storytelling and just, you know, putting everything into this like neat little everyone knows everyone box. But fate is definitely one of the core themes of the game. But that's beside the point. So yeah, with Squall in this position, with his only goal that he can see for himself right now to help this girl that he had just met, keeping in mind Squall is... 17 at the time of this story 17 or 18 17 or 18 at the time of this story his reaction to all of this pressure and responsibility is to take his not quite girlfriend piggyback her across the longest bridge in the world half of the longest bridge in the world to this country that people aren't 
quite sure if it actually exists and just run away from all of that responsibility because he can't deal with it anymore. Which I think we've all had a moment like that where we want to just flee to another place. Start my life over. Change my name. Move across the world. Live on a live on an island. <laughs> live in a in a techn- uh, technology utopia. A slightly xenophobic technology utopia. Yeah. So and it just that's something that people didn't like about the story, and they felt like it was. A, I don't know what the common criticisms were that it was random, that it was not a heroic thing to do, that wait, he just what he just walked away. It's definitely one of the story beats that a lot of that I have read some criticism about. And it definitely is along those lines, like, just why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just bring all your friends like you do to literally everything else you do? And it ties a lot into his personality. We've said his standoffish and angsty throughout the entire game. He is just unresponsive to people, socially absent. His most common catchphrase is an ellipsis, just three dots. And if it's not that, it'll be whatever. To the point where other characters mock him for that. In fact, characters start mocking him for that within the first few minutes of the game. Predicting his response as whatever, because he's just apathetic. And I don't think people realize that this is the first time he's not apathetic. This is the first time that he gives... It is the first time that he takes emotional charge and does a thing because he wants to do a thing. And it's the, you know, he gives enough of a damn to try to save this girl that he had only just met as far as we can tell through the story, because it's unclear how much time has passed by this point, and just leaves all of his responsibilities behind. Because the only thing that matters to him at this point is this emotional link that he has to this person and it really upsets me that this is the point this is one of the points that people point to and go this is bad storytelling i don't understand what you mean this is the most characterization squall is given throughout the entire game how is this the bad point so devil's advocate it is the bad point because again it's not really conveyed very well I think that's the issue with a lot of eights things, and some things it just doesn't try to convey. Like, the other biggest common criticism is time compression, which is the goal of the villain. And time compression is combining all presents together into one spot. And someone asks the scientist who gives all this exposition, why would she want to do this? And the reply is, she is a sorceress, we cannot know her motivations, more or less. And I mean, it's a pretty weird thing that results in some cool aesthetics, so that's kind of fun. But a lot of it just doesn't get told very well. But that moves on to like some of the points that I'd like to talk about a little bit, which is the level of confidence that 8 has with a lot of its things. And sometimes it's not fully earned, but it tries to use a more cinematic language. So we've transitioned from theater in terms of having more fixed camera angles in the old Super Nintendo Final Fantasies, and even 7 to some extent, going more into trying to ape the aesthetics of film. There's a really good moment early on in the game where you've passed your seed test, you've become a member of your mercenary group, and you and your trainer go to a sort of nice romantic spot to look at your school in the nightlight. And it's a really nice moment. And it just has a few moments of the characters just standing there and looking at the nice thing. A lot of a lot of movies aren't very good at just having quietness and characters doing very little. And 8 is very happy to spend these moments being quiet and doing these things more like films do. There's a greater sense of timing in conversations. A lot of times text boxes will appear up on top of other text boxes or in sync. Like whenever a character jokes about Squall's reactions, you always see Squall's text box and immediately in sync, the other text boxes crop up with whatever. Unprompted, they're not, they're not 
press X to continue conversation. They are just people talking out of turn a bit more naturally. And there's a lot of out of turn talking. And even there are a few points where text boxes will appear and obscure other text boxes Mm. so that you can't read all of the information necessarily. Because it's people shouting over other people. Yeah. There's a lot of ambition in just using these text boxes effectively. And I think that's a really interesting thing that because we moved on to voice acting not too much longer after this, this way of using text boxes never really came back that much because a lot of modern JRPGs just use very visual novel style storytelling sequences if they aren't using full choreographed cutscenes. So we've lost some of this. Uh, I mean, there are still... I can't think of an exact example now, but I know I've seen some of this in some recent indie games that are more text-driven with text boxes and That's stuff. That's true. So a lot of, there are a number of indie the games that use lost, this well. The isn't lost, but it was paused yeah, for a while. Yeah, it was paused for a while. That's a much better way to say it, because we never really lose these things. We just see them come back at different times. But more than just the storytelling, there's something about 8's delivery of information that is really special to me. So Final Fantasy 8's approach to distributing information is not exactly typical. In some ways it works really well, in some ways it doesn't. One of the main ways it distributes a lot of information about the world and characters is through magazines. There are a number of these to collect, such as magazines about weapons that you use to also get new weapons, but learn about maybe different creatures in the world that you used to make these weapons from. You've got Pet Pals, which is used to upgrade one character's limit breaks, a fighting magazine, Combat King, which is used to upgrade another character's limit breaks. You've also got an occult magazine that you use the information in that to unlock a certain powerful GF. So a lot of information is attributed in these small magazines that you can find throughout the world, which I always found collecting these pretty fun. There's not a lot of text in each of them, usually like four pages at most, but they sort of made the world feel a little bit more tangible because magazines, at least when 8 was published, were a thing that we all had. Yeah. I also want to point out that you say four pages. It really is like two paragraphs of text because... Oh yeah, each page is a paragraph of text. Uh, resolution being what it was, the text had to be relatively large in order for you to be for it to be legible. One of the other things that the game used to distribute information was in your menu there was item that was unfortunately called tutorial, and you would think that in that menu there will be only boring tutorial information, but actually in the tutorial section there is another section called information. And in that section, you have all sorts of information about the game's inner workings that other games would leave to manuals, leave to actual tutorials, or leave to any number of things like the manual. And in there, there's a lot of really great information about locations, the history of this world, because a lot of the events that happen in 8 more or less happen because of a lack of radio signals, which is something that you're not going to pick up if you just play the game. You have to read these information sections to really get a grip on how much that changes this world. You early on go to a radio tower, and I guess because that's one of the first places you go to, you just assume there are a number of them across the world. That's not the case. One of the first things you go and do in the game is stop, is try to stop a radio tower being set up. And that leads to one of the first major story events, which is a worldwide broadcast of something that's happening in real time, which hasn't happened for about 18 years, 17 years, actually. One of the other things that I really like about AIDS distribution of information, and this is more about mechanics than it is the story per se, is the seed quiz. So you're part of the mercenary group Seed. 
capital S, capital D. It's such a weird spelling. And every so often in in your playtime, you get your salary because you're an employee. So you get a salary rather than earning money from random encounters. You can increase that salary by fighting really well. You can increase that salary by doing very well in your initial seed exam. But the main way that you increase it and get it up to the maximum amount is to do very simple tests. I've got a collection of these questions ready that Blue hasn't seen. And I'm going to ask him them. Keep in mind, I haven't played the game in years at this point. So. You're supposed to say that you played it recently because we did good research. Oh, recently as in we I researched all of the points we were talking about. Not recently as in I went through all of the mechanics and understand how the game works at a deep uh, fundamental level. There's a difference there. So we're going to try these questions. And when you hear them, you might get yourself an idea of why these are good as ways to learn about the game a little bit except these are incentivized by the fact that they earn you money when you know these things and so to clarify yeah the format is yes or no's they're all just statements and you just have to respond yes or no so are you ready blue hit me gfs level up with ap yes no they learn oh. skills with ap oh. they level up with experience darn okay that's not a good start let's keep going any action taken while poisoned causes damage. There is no damage if you take no action. No. Yes. Oh. In Final Fantasy VIII, poison only triggers whenever you do something. If you do nothing, nothing happens. Oh, wait. So guard is an action, isn't it? Guard is an action. That's All right. right. Ha, 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 ha. I'm going to blame that on that. Squall's limit break is Kenzo Kuken. No. No, that's right. Attack magic can be used against party members. Yes. That's right. When a GF learns an ability, some new abilities may appear. Yes. Enemies level up as you do. Yes. Yes. If your GF is hardly used or has low compatibility with party members, it may leave your party. No. That's right. It is not a Pokemon. Under region, HP is restored regularly, even if you are afflicted with stop. Oh, that's a good question. It is, isn't uh, it? Statement. No, because... No, that's right. Because region works on the same principles as poison, doesn't it? No, so regions are more a continuous thing, actually. I expected it to be the same, but they're not. I tested this. Okay, but it doesn't work while stopped. No, it doesn't work while stopped. GF gains more experience if only one is junctioned to a party member. Yes. That's right. Counter doesn't trigger to attacks which affect all party members. That's an interesting question. I believe it does so long as the attack is physical? No, if the attack affects all party members, counter does not trigger. Okay, I am not passing the seed test. Let's go. <laughs> so these questions are all from different ranks. Yep. So the early questions are from the earlier tests and the these last questions. So this last, last question is from the very last test. Right. Casting Aura, a spell which lets you use Limit Breaks, under Curse, a status effect which prevents you using Limit Breaks, will bring your status back to normal. Yes. No. No. It does not work no. like hate. Oh, shame. And so when you hear all these questions... Like some of these, like, well, how would you know the answers? Well, you've got the information menu, which has a lot of these answers, but also they encourage you to go out and test, test them. Yep. Oh, I'm going to see if I can cast attack magic on my party. Yeah. I'm going to see if, if I cast region on a party member and then stop what happens. Mm. And so there's lots of interesting, useful bits of information here. 
you wouldn't want to waste time in a tutorial telling someone that aura and curse don't counteract each other, but it is worthwhile to know these things. So the exact interaction that happens there is you just can't limit break, right? You have aura, which does improve a few other bits and pieces other than pure limit breaks, but it doesn't crop up very often at all. But you can't use the limit break, but you are in theory like triggering them. You're just not able to use them. So yeah, I really like this little part of the game because it encourages players to look at the broader system and a lot of the questions these questions all have different purposes some suggest possibilities others are really just basic do you know that this is how the game works like enemies level up as you do is a really good question to have because it makes sure that players know this well it makes sure they know it assuming that they take these tests which are buried in a menu so it doesn't always work out again aid is a bit messy it has all these great ideas it doesn't always communicate them as well as it should but when it works it works very well with them but we've talked about some of the mechanics let's actually really get into the nitty-gritty of these mechanics looking at the junction system So what is the junction system? Well, first of all, it is one of the another part of the game, I should say, that receives a lot of criticism, a lot of flack. It's relatively opaque to a new player how it actually functions. But the basic gist of it is that on every character, you have an, a few stats, as you would expect for an RPG character. You have HP, strength, defense, magic attack, magic, and so on and so forth, right? Junctioning is the process of basically augmenting one of those stats. And you do this with magic from the game. Now, the magic system in Final Fantasy VIII is unique as far as I'm aware. I don't know if it's been replicated since, but at least at the time, I had never seen anything like it. I've been looking for things similar to its magic use system. And honestly, I think the closest we've seen in anything that's well known is Final Fantasy XV? Yeah. In that magic is not used from a shit from a pool that you use for all magic, but that magic is a consumable item, more or less. You can have a hundred cures and you cast one and you have ninety-nine cures now. You don't get more by going to an inn. And so that is yeah, the basic gist of it in Final Fantasy VIII, where you augment a stat with some magic. The more of that magic you have up to a maximum of 100, the more that augmentation happens. Certain stats benefit from having specific magics put on them. HP gets more of a boost if you use curative magics. Cure, Cura, Curaga. Full life gives you quad nine, no matter how much your base HP is. Although it's worth saying that it's not just curative, it's things that deal with life. So death and zombie are also actually very good in the health junction. Yeah, and so there's just that kind of weird, interesting interactions at that level, which most players don't want to learn. But the thing that makes people dislike this system quite a bit is that they feel like they're punished for using magic. Because a lot of players feel like, oh, I have Curiga junction to my health. So if I cast a cure spell, I'm going to lose maximum HP. I feel like I can't use magic anymore. I'm going to cure myself to lose maximum health. Makes sense. Which actually sounds like a pretty interesting dynamic in a roguelike or something. Yeah. But many players felt like very nervous and people, humans hate losing things. 
loss aversion is a well-established thing where people more or less hate losing something twice as much as they like getting something. So if you're going to make players lose something, then they need to be getting a lot of reward out of it. And for many players, even if they didn't see how they were losing a stat by casting this magic spell, a lot of people just they knew they were losing it and they couldn't cope with it. Another side effect of this junction system is there are not a trivial amount of stats to manage, especially across different characters. And most players that I knew at the time, as in the, you know, the teenagers that I was playing the game alongside with, didn't want to learn how junction worked. They just used automatic suggestions in terms of what should be junction to what. And to be fair, the auto function works pretty well. But you lose a lot of flexibility like you always have so much flexibility if you manually do these kinds of things that's true you have a lot of very cool nuance if you want to have that cool nuance but you can like if you know that you want attack power with this character you set them to attack you have you want magic another character you set them to that and usually for my most recent playthrough i would mostly use the auto function and then I would manually tinker with one or two particular stats. Yep, use it as a baseline and then tweak. Especially by the end of the game, where you can equip a magic to each of your stats, of which there are about 10. Then you can equip a magic, an elemental attack magic. Then you can equip two to four elemental defense magics, then a status magic, then two to four status magic defenses, which is a lot of spells. That is a lot of spells. And it's often not worth it for most players to micromanage all of that. But there's usually a few things that you want to micromanage. But Junction isn't just equipping magic to your things. You also have to equip GFs, Guardian Forces, to your characters, the summons in this game. And then they have different abilities that are your command abilities that you select from the menu. So they define your combat functions as well as how well you can do your combat things. Without a GF, characters don't have anything other than attack and base stats. Without a GF, a character is unable to reach into their inventory and pull out a potion because the item command, it comes from a GF. So GFs are really important to this system, which is interesting. And there's some interesting mechanics with them too. So GFs as a combat option have, they act as a barrier. They act as a secondary life gauge for you, which in theory brings up some very interesting tactical options. But in practice, GFs are not sufficiently powerful compared to what you can get done with the junction system to ever really be worth using them in that capacity. But it's a very cool idea, which is what can be said of a lot of this game systems. But how do we get magic blue? So we have limited amounts of magic. How do we actually get it? There are a number of different ways. And the most basic one is introduced relatively early to the player and is tutorialized quite well from memory. Am it's, I... sort of, it's just vaguely mentioned. It's not really okay. tutorialized well at all. And how did I learn to do it? Because it's not really... Maybe it's just experiment with it. You don't have that many options early on, I guess. Is that... Yeah, yeah, you just don't have many options. And I think someone says, you should collect some magic before going into the dungeon, more or less. That's right. Okay, so we're dancing around it um, a bit here. Um, early on in the game, you don't have very many command abilities in combat. And it makes sense to just fill as many in as you can. One of them is draw. D-R-A-W. And drawing magic from an opponent or sorry drawing from an opponent gives you a list of magic that the enemy has and then when you select that magic it steals that magic from the opponent it's 
absorbs it. They have an unlimited amount, so it's not really stealing. So you you take that's one of the questions in the seed exam, actually. Yes, I was. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for that to be there to really pad out how the magic system works because that's never made clear other than in the seed exam, I think. No, nothing in the game will ever bring it up. But it, the there are no numbers next to these things so. it makes sense enemies are an unlimited font of magic but only specific types so the bug bite one of the first enemies you'll encounter will have an unlimited amount of scans and fire that's right good memory <laughs> yeah uh and as long as you want those from them you can just draw as much as you want and this leads to often the first bad play experience that 8 offers, which is players who have a basic idea of how these systems work will immediately go, oh, so what you're telling me to do is to go out, see what magics are available to me, and draw the maximum limit of each of them. And I think a lot of players have a story of going and doing that immediately at the very start of the game. And strategically, it's frankly a very good plan. For the very start of the game, it sets you up very well for the rest of the game if you do that. It also takes half an hour or an hour per... Yeah, it is so tedious of a process. So to break this down further, the maximum number of magics you can draw in one draw action is nine. This is influenced, not that the player knows this at the beginning of the game, but this is influenced by your magic attack stat. And some of your characters start off with less than stellar magic attack stats. So at the bare minimum, you need 10, 11 turns to be able to draw 100 magic from any enemy. And it's really annoying as well because if you draw perfect nines the whole way, the last one is just a 1. Wait, 12, 12. 11 times 9 is 99. Yeah, 12. 12 turns. So it takes a long time, but also 8 was... It was a fancy, pretty 3D PlayStation 1 game. So it was so animated. This is not a quick, high-speed RPG. And you and I both played the PAL version, which ran slower than its American <laughs> counterpart. So it took even longer than the average experience would have taken. Yeah, this is a very slow process. It's helped somewhat by the fact that you can move magics around between party members. Mm, so you only need to have three characters, which is the party size, with all these large collections of magic. It's worth noting that you can actually cast magic from drawing. It's almost never worth doing because of the chance of failure and the magic is weaker if you do this. But in theory, it offered a very good solution to what happens if you run out of magic. Well, you can use your opponent's magic during combat. Which in theory is a really cool idea. In practice, outside of a few occasions, enemies didn't have spells that were useful in those combats. It tends to make sense for an enemy to have magic that it is strong against. But there's a cool exception, which is a few bosses that are status effect heavy have Asunas or Dispels on them. For example, a D has Dispel on her when you first encounter her. And that stat in that battle... Dispel can be very useful against some of the defense magic she uses, so it's a good thing to have, but also she uses status magic against you. So having those abilities in combat without having prepared them is a good way to prevent a player from needing to already know what they need. Gives them a chance at finishing a battle in the first shot, which is always a nice feeling in RPGs. If you walk into a battle and you have no idea what to expect and you manage to just pull it out because you managed to play strategically during the combat. But unfortunately, overall, these draw and cast abilities are not that useful. 
But there is another way to get magic abilities, which is through item refinement. Players who spend a lot of time analyzing the systems and like trying to understand how to quote unquote break the game, this is what you're looking for. So GFs, the Guardian Forces, can learn a variety of abilities that you get AP at the end of combat towards. Every GF, but more or less, has at least one of these refinement abilities that lets you change items into either other items or into magic. And usually at pretty high rates. So often there's a way, like a single item that will get you 30 of a high-powered spell or 10 of a basic spell for very easy-to-access items. So after the initial part of the game, you're mostly getting your magic from these refinement abilities. I kind of wish that the game approached these abilities a little bit differently. In the game as it stands, you have to spend AP to learn them. I think using these abilities would be more intuitive if GFs came with them immediately. So that you could tell which GF was good for what kind of magic? That too, but also just that when you get a GF, it's not an extra step to get this ability. Players won't make the wrong choice and not learn it immediately. They'll just have this tool and actually know it because the fact that no GF comes with the ability initially and you have to learn it means that players might not notice that these abilities exist. I will admit that a frequent impulse for me when getting a new Guardian Force is to look at what junctions it offers because I'm more interested in getting a junction that I don't already have as opposed to what magic can it provide to me, which is in the long run probably much more powerful. Mm, and it's really tempting early on when you have very few junctions, but one of the most important way, one of the ways to get the best items in the game is to learn card mod, which costs 80 AP to learn, which is a very high amount, especially early in the game. And you have to choose to do this instead of something else. But if you don't do this, you'll be well behind the power curve very early on. The ways to get the best magic is from refining cards into good items, which then get refined into good magic. For a way understanding of what I mean by all this, so if you learn the make thunder magic ability, thunder refinement, you can have the maximum amount of the highest level thunder magic before you do your first major mission in the game. And that's more or less how Ape plays. You send you spend most of the game with most of the high power magic for most of the time. If you understand If you know systems. how to break the well not break if you know how to game the game. And the game isn't very good at communicating that you want these items to do this refinement. And that's, I think, one of its biggest issues overall, is that it doesn't communicate the best way to play it. And so many players tend to play in a very, in the in a less enjoyable manner. Did that sound fair to you? Absolutely. So there's a lot to be said about item refinement and cards in particular. And we will get to cards as basically an entire topic on its own later in this podcast. But first, we are going to talk about the final area in the game, Ultimecia's Castle. And if you care about spoilers... You should skip this, although we're not going to talk about much in the way of narrative. We're going to talk about a few mechanical things, but yep. the twist that is coming is the mechanical twist that's coming is kind of interesting. So there'll be timestamps in the show notes. If you want to skip this section, we recommend you do so. And it won't impact your ability to understand the last part of the podcast either.
So Ultimecia's castle is possibly one of the best designed parts of Final Fantasy VIII. In a mechanical context, maybe not narratively? Yeah, yeah. I, I admit that I have zero recollection of how rooms relate to each other, and from memory, they are just very vividly different. Like, there isn't a consistent style throughout most of the castle other than it's vaguely castle interior-ish. It's vaguely castle interior-ish. It's all very over-the-top and gaudy. But yeah, the areas can all be quite different. I guess that is an internal style, right? Gaudy. Ultimecia is a very ostentatious character. But the mechanical twist is what we're talking about here because this is this is something that's cool that the game does that it doesn't really give you much warning for. And it works because because it doesn't give you warning. So if you want to experience this again, fair warning. But the context of this, which is important, is that disc four starts with a boss fight and disc four is the last disc of the game and is very short in comparison to the other discs. Starts with a boss fight and effectively our heroes fail to stop time compression. That weird MacGuffin that the villain was after to put- They deliberately enter time compression in order to Meet her on her turf and defeat her. Yeah, so they do preparation to make sure that they aren't pulled out of time per se, but the villain gets what they want. Ultimecia gets what she's after, which is time compression and quote-unquote all presence in one time. You go through a boss fight that leads that to happen, and then you're just kind of left on the steps of Ultimecia's castle that's appeared out of nowhere. Before we skip out on this boss fight, I want to say that the boss fight we've gone through in this series of encounters has been filled with a lot of like very vivid, surreal imagery and like a lot of transitioning from all the areas you've fought in so far and the aesthetic of the castle is very out there compared to a fairly cohesive world that we've dealt with so far. It's been a weird world, but a lot of internally cohesive things have been in it. Sections feel like they belong with sections. S-star, sections of S-star feel like they belong in S-star. You can tell when you're in Centra. You can tell when you're in Balam Garden specifically. And even Balam in general. Like Balam's a very like curvy, flowy place. Yeah. Ultimecia's castle is like much more wacky and weird and over the top than anything we've seen in the game so far. Feels like a villain out of left field and that's mostly because it is like and the entire area reflects this you are walking into this castle where you don't know what your enemy is capable of and as it turns out what she's capable of is taking away all of your abilities it's a big shock there are eight abilities that are sealed such as magic gf item draw saving so just to clarify item is sealed away Again, and we'll talk about this in much more detail towards the end of the episode, but by virtue of being in Ultimecia's castle for the first time, our protagonists are now unable to pull a potion out of the bag and chug it in combat. The only thing you can do at the start of the dungeon, you can't even save in the dungeon. At a save point outside of the dungeon you can use, but inside you can't even save without choosing to unlock the ability. So your first boss encounter in this dungeon, you have no options other than attack. And this sounds pretty boring, and this first boss encounter is pretty boring, but everyone after that, you get this really great, interesting choice of what do you actually want and what do you need to get through and defeat the next thing. So as clarification, what happens when you beat... So there are multiple bosses within Ultimecia's castle, and they are distinguished as bosses because, number one, you cannot run from them. Number two, they offer you no experience. That's a quirk of Final Fantasy VIII where bosses offer you zero experience, However, offer you AP instead to help your Guardian Forces learn things. The main thing is that defeating each of these bosses allows you the opportunity 
to unlock an ability. And that's how the entire dungeon progresses. Ultimacia's Castle is a reduction. You are left with nothing but attack to begin with. And if you so choose to, you can scour the castle and find all of the bosses because they're not all on the main path to Ultimacia in order to unlock all of your lost abilities, all your sealed abilities. In fact, very few are on the way. Yeah, you can just bull rush your way through, fight the bare minimum that's required, which is three. I honestly don't remember exactly how many you need to fight. It's two or it's only two or three it's, from yeah, memory. It's not very many at all. Someone correct us if we're wrong, but we'll we'll go with this for now. It's like two or three bosses on the way to Ultimisia, which means that you will unlock what are your priorities? I want to be able to cast magic. I want to be able to use items. I want to be able to summon my guardian force. Like that could be it. And some of these, like I'd forgotten, I just brought up a list while we were treading. Resurrect is one of these. Can't bring characters back from KO if you haven't unsealed that ability. Specifically the Resurrect command. You can still use Phoenix Downs off of item. No. What? You you can't revive characters from KO. Duh. At least the Final Fantasy wiki here is to be believed. And I do believe them. I do as well. I may have misunderstood that then. Because I do know... I really thought it was talking about the Resurrect command. Because there is a command that doesn't cost you any resources to bring a character back. I must have thought that they were talking about that instead of the ability to bring a character back. It is surprising when I read it now. But I do feel like it... I do recall it to be the case. It makes sense. And Limit Breaks are the last one. Yes, so key. And we haven't talked about Limit Breaks much in the course of this discussion, but in the ways that you can break this game for many play playthroughs, Limit Breaks are one of the best ways to deal damage, and there are lots of ways in the game to use Limit Breaks very often. Limit Breaks are the holy grail of damage efficiency in Final Fantasy VIII. Because there is no, uh, let me correct myself, there are very few ways to break the damage cap of quad 9, 9,999, on a single hit. Many limit breaks offer you the ability to just hit multiple times and therefore break that damage limit. And if you're not familiar with limit breaks, limit breaks in this game are very powerful moves that you can use either when you have very low life, or if a character's crisis level is very high, which can be increased by status effects, other characters being dead, or the aura spell being cast on them. So they come up when things are bad is the way they're supposed to work. But there are very many ways to game this system thanks to its pieces. But that's not important right now. What's important is that you have to decide how you play the game from here on out and what is going to get you to the next unseal. And it really depends on what your playstyle through the game has been. In your particular experience, you used Guardian Forces heavily, correct? When I first played this game, most of my damage for most of the game was done through Guardian Forces, which wasted an awful lot of time as they have long animations that don't do that much damage, but that's how I played. So GS was the very first ability I unlocked when I first played through this game. But when I played through, I didn't unlock item because I never used items in combat, ever. Most people didn't. But yeah, there are very distinct choices to make here depending on how you played. In more recent playthroughs, I grab magic first and then I grab limit break, which I imagine is how most people would do this these days, but perhaps not. Was it the same for you? Did you do magic then limit break? I did something very similar because I it was not my first time playing by the time I reached Ultimisia's Castle for the first time. I had learned how to play more optimally in terms of damage output. So yes, I definitely would have prioritized being able to cast aura and then being able to use limit breaks to be able to get through the bosses. 
One of the things I really like in this list of the sealed abilities is that saving is sealed though, because that just adds a whole extra layer of tension. And while the game is still pretty easy, you don't know if these bosses are going to be as easy as the rest of the game has been. And so there's a nice bit of tension as to do I go through and fight multiple at once or do I a multiple in sequence or do I go out and save each time? So it is worth noting here that you can just leave the dungeon to the save point outside of Ultimecia's castle, save there and go back in. But it it's not great running around in Final Fantasy VIII. It's fine. It's functional. The game has a built-in way to turn off encounters, which helps a lot. Yep. So most players by this point will be able to turn off any random encounters, uh, so all random encounters, and effectively at this point, Ultimecia's castle becomes, when is the next boss fight? What, is this, what do I do in this room to get the boss fight and stuff like that? And that's true. Each of the bosses, is most of the bosses, I should say, are hidden behind a puzzle of some kind, where the puzzle is, how do I navigate through this unclear dungeon to get to them? Or whether the puzzle is something more... Pick up rock, put rock in alcove, and suddenly the boss spawns. There are those things. There's also an interesting puzzle in an art gallery in this dungeon where you have to observe a few bits of information and come together to give an answer to a, a title of a painting. You have to discern what the title of this image would be based on other information in the room. And that, I believe, is unique. There, I can't think of another puzzle in the game that's like that. There aren't any other good puzzles in the game, really. It's not a game with standout puzzles. So it's it really is an interesting and fascinating area in the game because so much effort has been put to make this dungeon special and stand out and such a singular experience as compared to everything else in the game. And even the music is in a very different tone to the rest of the game. It's this very regal kind of music with lots of very fine strings and things. It's not, it doesn't match the rest of the game's audio aesthetic, but also the visual aesthetic is very different in this castle too from color palette and the fact that it's classically castly even, which the game doesn't have much of. And I guess it's also worth pointing out that, yes, there are things you can do outside of the castle that like reopen the game world to you, but that's it for disc four. You run the boss fight that we mentioned at the start of it, you're left on Ultimesis Castle steps, and this dungeon is it for the entire disc. It gives a very interesting feel to the entire disc because most players nowadays who didn't play in this era wouldn't understand what it felt like to put a new disc in and expect you know what and what to expect off of this it's a very unique experience of okay th that was how much it took to get through one disc i'll put the next disc in i expect that much again disc four of final fantasy 8 was very short in terms of the linear story that was presenting to you and that to me gave it much more finality to the game yeah it's very it's very noticeable like the fourth disc the last disc only really has this one area in it. You can access past areas, but not very well. You've got a lot of limitations in what you can access. And it makes this castle feel more impressive in some ways because it's the whole disc. And you can finish this castle in about an hour at most, if you know what you're doing. Or you can easily finish it in an hour, actually, not an hour at most. If you want to put in time, there are a few interesting secrets. There's a secret boss that you can fight and things. The game also has ways to pick up things that you missed throughout the play experience. 
So you won't miss out on something if you missed out on it earlier in the game, which is nice. Yeah. Final Fantasies are notorious for the last boss not being the most powerful enemy in the game. The title of most powerful enemy in the game actually goes to a hidden boss within the castle, as you said before. So there are challenges in Ultimatia's castle, and it's just a very interestingly put together dungeon area of the game. Which, given that both the dungeons in 8 have not been very good, but also Final Fantasy dungeons are not usually the best dungeons in RPGs. And so this is very much a stand-up dungeon for the entire franchise, really. Very few Final Fantasy dungeons are gimmicked. And at the end of the day, sealing your ability. And if they are, they're not gimmicked in a good way. So at the end of the day, sealing your abilities, especially at the 11th hour of the game, at the climactic battle... Just to make you really step back. Because you're all geared up for the final fight. You walk in and you want to go in guns blazing and you just kind of can't. And you're really forced to slow down and think about what you've done through the game. It's an interesting forced reflection and introspection. And it also makes Ultimecia feel a bit more scary, actually. Like, I was very shocked when my abilities were sealed. And, I mean, that was when I was a younger person experiencing it. But it's still, like, a shocking moment, like... She has this power. She can stop you from doing literally any of the things you can do. It's narratively powerful, I think. Which, given that she has so little screen time or any time, in fact, it's a very good use of mechanics as storytelling. But I think we've talked a lot about this, and I'd like to move on to maybe what people most want to hear us talk about. So almost every tweet mentioned this topic. Triple triad. So when we put out a message on Twitter, nearly every tweet that we got sent mentioned it. Specifically, we had one from Bob Moriarty. Triple triad is definitely one of my favorite things in Final Fantasy VIII. Even today, I still log in to Final Fantasy XIV to play new rounds. And Final Fantasy VIII's triple triad is very infamous as being one of the better parts of the game. It's got a physical version that was released and distributed it's the thing that people talk about when they talk about Final Fantasy VIII. What is it? Well, Triple Triad is a card minigame, card-based minigame. And so this will eventually tie back into what we talked before in the GFs and junctioning about cards. But the way it functions is that you have a 3x3 three three board. That means you can place three cards in rows and three cards in columns for a total of nine spaces. And all you do is you take turns to place a card down on a spot on the board. And if you place one, your opponent places one. The goal is to just control more cards by the end of the match. So each card also has four numbers on it. They each correspond to a direction coming out of the card. So to the top of the card, to the left of the card, to the right of the card, and to the bottom of the card. When you place a card down, it will check to see if there are any adjacent cards. So if you place a card and there's a card on the left, it'll check to see if your number to the left is greater than the card to your left's number on the right. If it is, you flip that card and the opponent does the same to you. And it only triggers when you put down a card. So if you put down a card next to things with very high values, your card doesn't get flipped, your card stays safe. But if anything next to it had a lower value when you placed it, it'll flip. Yeah, so there's... A weird, it's obviously a small board, it's only three by three, but there's enough of a play space here to develop some simple strategies like, oh, this card has a strong top and left number. I'm going to place it in the bottom right corner so that its weaknesses are covered. But then there's the trade-off of 
if you've got the first turn, do you use it to hoard a corner safely? Or do you not put it there and put something else on the field so that later on you've got a trump if there are things in the right angles with it? So everything has this nice risk reward, even though the strategies are quite simple. And so that's the game triple triad at a very base level. Now, that on its own is honestly enough for me. That was interesting enough for me. I actually strove to make triple triad in my game as simple as that wherever possible. But this is a complex JRPG, and so there is a bit of complexity to triple triad aside from this. Different regions in the game have different rules that they like to play Triple Triad. And it's really just like playing regional versions of games as you travel around the world. And that happens all the time in the real world anyway. And it helps give each of the areas a bit of a sense of identity, which I really enjoyed the idea, at least, that, oh, where in this area they have this cultural identity and it's reflected in these rules. Where in this other country... We see different rules being applied and they don't really tie much into the local cultures unless you really push. You have to stretch it a bit to try to get that to happen. Yeah, like the area you start in is Balam, and they have the rule called open where everyone can see everyone else's hand. Because they're a very open <laughs> city. They're a very open and democratic country, whereas <laughs> sure. Galbadia, they have the rule when you win, you get, if you win by more cards being under your control, you get more cards from winning. Am I right? Yeah. And then the sort of lost country of Centra, they were sort of a more freewheeling kind of people and they play with the random rule where you play with a random collection of your cards as opposed to ones that you pick yourself. And so it gives every area a different flavor. Unfortunately, most of the area's rules, other than the initial area, feel like they get in the way of playing the game. And you have a lengthy story about what you did to make the game play how you wanted it to. Well, a lengthy story in that I really disliked how certain rules played, as in... so. We talked about like rules that allow you to see the cards, that allow you to choose the cards to be able to use and play it at all. But there are rules that I felt added randomness to the game. And it wasn't random. If you could see their cards, you could see where they could place things and just work it out. I was lazy. Let, let no one convince you otherwise. I was just lazy. And I wanted these rules to go away. So there are rules for if you match a number on two sides of a card, you just get a magic flip, even if you don't actually beat the raw number total. There are rules for matching numbers in specific patterns that gets you more flips. I didn't want any of that. I had better cards. I wanted to win on the merit that I had better cards. And the computer was very good at using these rules much better than players were. Yeah, I, I could not do the math to work this out and I didn't want to. So I went online and I went to look up how to remove rules from regions. And then I spent lots of time removing all rules except for open from any region whatsoever. So it's worth just elaborating a little bit. So when you play a game with someone, let's say you play with someone in the starting region, Balam, and then you go to Galbadia and you play a game of cards there, they might say, oh, you know some different rules for me. Let's mix our rules together. And when you do this, you will spread a rule throughout a region, most likely. But there is also a chance that you will remove a rule that didn't exist in your home region. And so I saved and loaded until that happened everywhere. Which is a nice microcosm of the junction system in that 
you can break and force your will into this system and make it play as you want if you're willing to think about how it works and maybe do a bit of save scumming. And one of the big reasons for doing this is there is a section in the game where you go up to uh, you you go to a, a hard to reach area that you only go through once that you only have one real shot at and there are ways to get cards that you miss later on in the game but if you want to get it first try and as early as possible you'll have to play someone in this area and they use rules from Sentra. So you mentioned that Sentra has random and that's one of the problem rules. It means that your victories are harder to come by because you might be given some of your weaker cards. That's mostly fine. I could conceivably get rid of all my weak cards so I only have strong cards to pull from. However, Sentra... That was my solution. That was your solution, which is very smart. And I will admit, I probably don't think I would have thought of that when I was playing this game. I mean, it depends. Some people really hate the fact you can refine cards and turn them into items because they feel like they're losing their collection. So maybe you liked having a collection. I absolutely did. Whereas I just wanted the raw power that the items offered me. Yeah, that's fair. So because it uses the rules from Sentra, it also has all of the annoying... Sentra has every rule except open from memory. I'm not sure that's the case, but I don't have notes on hand to contradict that. Sentra has many rules, and a lot of them were problematic to me, such as the same and plus rules, which just confused yeah, me. Yeah, it has same plus random. I think that was it, actually, but it has the rules that everyone hates. That's the important There aren't thing. actually many people on the Sentra continent. The Sentra continent is the lost continent, and very few players... Uh, are like, like you don't have very many opportunities to play cards against the people who are there so i went out of my way to before going to this out of the way once only region to play someone from centra a number of times and abolish all of centra's rules so that when i finally got to this with you know hindsight as my friend i was able to just get the card that i wanted from this person i don't even remember what card it is i think it was alexander but i don't know that sounds like a likely candidate. But the question is, why would you want these cards? So we talked about item refinement, making items into magic. We alluded to the fact that cards could be turned into items and that this was something desirable. Yes, so cards can be turned into items. And some of these items teach your GF's raw abilities, like how to junction magic to your HP stat or how to junction magic to your physical attack stat. Other items give them command abilities, like reviving a character without using a magic spell. But most of the time, they give you the ability to access very high level magic, often very early in the game or accessing other very good things early in the game. You can get the very best weapon in the game in a very early part if you play enough cards. It's very tedious, but you can do it. I totally did this. It is a long process. You're, you need to know who has the cards that you need because every single playable opponent has a different set of cards they can draw from. And unless it's a unique card, they have unlimited of that card. But still, you need to know who you're playing against. And it's a very time-consuming process of... Even if you're playing with the best cards in the game, you'll have to play them repeatedly. And in the early parts of the game, you definitely do not have a collection that always wins. So I was at the point where I had to beat and obtain a couple of cards and then just save just in case and then come back and try to get more cards out of them. And to put this in sense of scale for time, 
I was trying to get the Lionheart Blade in Disc 1. The way to do this is, the trick to this is that as long as you have the items for a weapon upgrade, you don't need to know the recipe for it. You can just get the item. The item shop, the weapon shop will just do it for you. So you needed to know what the, the items that you need are. And in order to get the Lionheart, you needed, I don't remember the exact item, but you needed you need 12 pulse ammo. 12 pulse ammo, yeah. That was the key one. I think you needed a couple of like steel pipes and whatever, but they're relatively easy to get in terms of cards. But the pulse ammo was the key. So in order to get 12 pulse ammo, your best bet was to refine 10 Elveret cards into an item that gave you 10 pulse ammo, which meant you needed to get 20 Elveret cards to get to the 12. It takes a while. That's the... That in particular ended up taking me a good three hours or so. And it's not terribly necessary to do this. Like, this is not the strategy you need to play to get through this game. This is a optional, I did this, I can do this. So yeah, that was very much done in order to be able to say I did it. But the real important thing about cards is that even without going to those lengths to abuse the system, just playing a few matches with important characters gets you some very good cards that lets you have reign over magic that no human should have control over. Most boss fights give you, most important boss fights give you a card that is also very good, that can often be refined into a hundred of their important elements, giving you a lot of very powerful magic at your disposal whenever you want it. And so the whole game gives you a lot of reasons to care about cards and to use cards as a way to make your characters more powerful. It sort of becomes an alternative power progression to leveling. It's worth noting that you do not have to do any of this, and we do want to emphasize that most players wouldn't spend the amount of time that I spent on it for good you reason. You can play very little. So even in my most recent playthrough, where I definitely abused the card system, I probably didn't spend more than two or three hours of the entire playtime playing cards. Because if you, if you just run on the logic that if I have the chance to play cards against someone who is clearly important to the story, such as the headmaster or the initial major villain, you should do that. You should always do that if you see that opportunity. Because they will probably have one card you want. Whether it's a card from a summon or a card that represents a major story character, those cards are always good and those cards are the things that get you ahead of the curve. But the game just gives you most of the cards that get you ahead of the curve, but it's up to you to identify that you have the card that is worth refining to actually refine it, which means that you lose that card to get you better cards. And that's the extra cool trick that I think makes this a really fun sell, is that you have these powerful cards. The very first boss you fight, Ifrit, gives you a pretty good card, and you could refine him to get three elemental attack junctions which saves you about an hour of grinding if you wanted them right then and there. But if you keep him, that'll help you get other cards, which will help you get better magic, which will help you get more ahead of the general curve, which means that you probably don't need those elemental attack junctions. Or you might find other ways to get that ability without the effort. But yeah, they're a great alternative to progression, I feel. And they're such a key part of quote-unquote breaking the game. Yeah, anyone you talk to who's broken Final Fantasy VIII usually has done so by getting some cool things from cards. And I guess speaking of breaking the game, that's the last topic we want to talk about. How a lot of things are broken in Final Fantasy VIII. But in a good way. In a good way.
Final Fantasy VIII also does not just mechanical breakings of things, but breakings of tropes and metaphors. So when we think of RPGs, often the mechanics represent things characters are going through. When you level up, you gain power, you gain skill points. They represent your practice and you learning new abilities. So many people have made the kind of joke analogy that you level up on your birthday. You're not getting older, you're getting higher in level. That's a really good metaphor and it's a really good way of understanding these sort of systems. Like you are developing in leveling up and things. Eights, metaphors don't match up like junctioning. What is it? Well, it's linking two things together, but what space they're occupying? How do these creatures exist? These metaphors aren't clear. And obviously RPGs like go pretty abstract with their systems, but in Final Fantasy VII, you put magical gems in your swords and that's how you cast magic. That makes a level of intuitive sense. Junctioning feels fairly abstract. A lot of the things in eight are hard to latch onto. Magic's not a real thing. Oh, I mean, it's not a real thing because magic doesn't exist, but I mean, magic isn't a tangible thing. It's not a skill that you learn. It's just a hundred fires is what you have in your magic slots. And then you can lose it and then be less good. And you're less good at doing fast things. These metaphors don't work very well, which is part of the reason why eight is really hard to play because it's hard to intuit how these systems interact because these metaphors are not clear. And on some level, you might think, oh, you know, okay, so the junction system is purely mechanical, that's fine. But there are consequences to this. So the big one, in my opinion, is how levels and leveling is handled. I, I guess we should give a more common example first. So I think we talked about using Dragon Age as an example here for what is common. In Dragon Age, as your characters get experience, they level up. That much is pretty normal. You tend to need more experience the higher in levels you go because it gets harder to just make that drastic improvement to become a higher level. That makes sense to players. And with each level up, you gain a skill point representing what your character's been practicing as they've been working towards things. And it represents their milestones and characters learn their abilities. So yeah, so much of this is just thrown out of the window. Abilities are learned by guardian forces. They're not inherent in your characters. Your characters can only use an ability if they have the guardian force that knows how to use it equipped. And leveling up is every 1000 experience points, which is really neat. And it looks good in the UI because you just always know when your next level is coming, but it doesn't represent this progressive increase in how difficult it is to gain these levels. Yep. And all of that is fine for the most part. None of that necessarily breaks the way the player interprets the game. What does break and why tropes are important is that as a consequence of this easy level up, because levels are easy to come by, they are not good for you in general. If you want to break the game to the maximum extent, you actually want to be low leveled in the game because as the seed exam reminded us, levels of the enemies scale with your level. Which means that if you want to stay powerful, you need to use these junction abilities more and more efficiently, the higher and higher level you get. Because the amount of stat gain you get from a level up is often not as significant as maybe other monsters is. So hard mode Final Fantasy VIII is being level 100. 
Yeah. The natural limit for stats on a character will tend to be around the 100 mark, with stats going up to 255. The kind of catch to this, though, is you can hit 255 without leveling up because the junction system is abusable. So all this to say that leveling up is bad, and that's an expectation that is very hard to sell to a player. And in fact, one of the tweets we got when we were doing our prep was that one of our listeners, Zajeti, never beat the final boss, stating that he cheesed through the final stretch of the game with a 0% encounter rate, which you can get very easily in the game. And just even though the systems actually mean that not doing the encounters was probably to his benefit, his perception of the importance of leveling up was really strong. Like he expected the games he played as other RPGs should be, based on that comment at least. So tropes are important to a lot of games and a lot of genres of games or collections of games because they're a common language. They are something that you understand about a game before you start playing about it. And if you want to break that, it's up to the game to explain to you why and how you are breaking it. Final Fantasy VIII does not break that well. Or, or rather, it breaks that so well, but it doesn't explain to you how it breaks it, that it's very easy to fall into this trap of, oh, I, I need levels, so I'm going to go and level. And it's a really bad thing to make this mistake with, because if you are struggling with a boss and you grind some levels and go back, you're not going to have any advantage really but if you tactically go i don't have the power to beat this boss i'm going to go play cards for an hour there's a greater chance that you'll walk back into the fight armed with better magic and able to deal with this better and that's counterintuitive very to a lot of people because people don't think oh i need to get stronger i'm gonna play some magic the gathering rather than go to the gym i wish that's how life worked I, but life would be so much better if it was more like final fantasy 8's mechanics but uh no not really <laughs> If life was like that, trading cards, singletons, like building a good deck, being like your physical health is problematic in a capitalist. Anyway, <laughs> that's that's an aside. That is a very big aside. I can give you one relatively concrete example of how level scaling affects the game. The hidden boss Omega weapon at the lowest level that you can possibly be has 300,000 health. At level 100, has 1.5 million health. That is a huge gap to cross when you can only reasonably deal damage in quad 9 increments. Assuming that you've set up some pretty optimal builds even, because quad 9, it's not impossible to hit. But it's not natural. You're hovering more around... 5,000. 6,000, 5,000. So leveling up without understanding what actually makes you stronger is the biggest way that it breaks metaphor and tropes as compared to other games and possibly hurt it the most. Because we mentioned before that one of the criticisms that people would level against Final Fantasy VIII was how difficult to understand the junction system is. The junction system as a mechanic was contingent upon people choosing to invest time to learn it because of how it broke leveling and level scaling. And it wasn't necessarily the fault of the junction mechanics that made people turned off to it, but it was this metaphor break that made people feel bad about it. That's very much the case, I feel. It's hard to latch onto because it doesn't feel like it's in anything. And some games have some really abstract systems that even though in some sense they don't really match up with anything, like the Final Fantasy X Sphere Grid, yeah. The metaphor of a board game is something that people can latch onto really easily. If I light up more lights 
in this, it's good for me. The metaphor of Junction just isn't strong, and so it's hard to look at and really grasp. I think the actual mechanic of it is really easy. It's just there are lots of different things you can equip directly to stats. The possibilities are very high because for every stat you have, you have so many magics that could go into that slot. There are more magics in the game than any one character can hold at any given time. And that number is 8 times 4. So 8 times 4, that's correct. And 8 times 4 is 32. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that took me a while. We can do uh, well, basic math. Welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls, where we feel accomplished in ourselves. We're doing basic mathematics on the fly. Our platform is speaking about game design. Our pitfall is mathematics. <laughs> mathematics. So 32 obviously feels like a low number, but more than 32 possibilities for each of the junction slots that we mentioned before starts to become daunting. It does. And while the auto functions that you skip over it a little bit, it's still something that ultimately you need to, you should at least learn. Thanks to the overall ease of the game, the fact that this metaphor break, this trope break isn't well understood, isn't hugely problematic, but it does result in a worse play experience for many players and a stronger metaphor for these systems might have made it a little bit easier for players to grasp onto. So I think that's it for our trope and metaphor break. We're going to do a little bit of our own break of form because there's lots of like little interesting, cool things about 8 that don't fit into our core topics. And we're going to just spend a few minutes talking over some little nice touches that we just really like about the game. So Final Fantasy VIII, I hope it's clear by now, is some is a game that both of us find very near and dear to our hearts. And there is a lot more that we want to talk about that doesn't neatly fit into any of the core topics that we set out for this. So in breaking form, we're just going to spend some time bringing up a seemingly random points that we feel are worth talking about. So I was going to jump straight into... Such as gushing just about things. Yeah, this is just basically gushing because I think this is cool. And... Now that there's almost 20 years between then and now, I would just want to say the Gunblade is cool, all right? Yeah, yes, it's a bit edgy. Yes, it's a bit just trying a bit too hard to be cool, but putting a sword on a gun, I can get behind that. And on top of that, it has an interesting tiny little gameplay element that every time Squall attacks normally with his Gunblade, you can hit R1 to trigger an extra explosion. If you time it just right, you get a bit more damage. That's really neat. It just gives you a tiny bit more immersion into the character that you're playing there. And it's not much, but it does help just bring a little bit more um, observation to the combat. And at the time, this is pre-Paper Mario, but post-Mario um, RPG, that was pretty rare. It's one of Square's first foray into making their combats a bit more active as well, to put timing behind it. As we know, they moved quite far away from the active turn-based system. This is like one of the things that they did to break that early on. Uh, as a kind of related aside, Squall as a character, we talked about stats before. He has a natural 255 hit stat. Hit is the chance for a character to hit something, uh, accuracy, and not miss, not let the opponent dodge it. 255 basically means guaranteed hit unless there's a story or specific combat reason why he can't hit it. And as an interesting note to this, Squall can hit through the blind status effect with his gunblade. So usually blind makes you less likely to hit things because, well, you can't see is the metaphor. And for some reason, Squall, yeah, Squall just has natural 255 hit. 
if you trigger your gun blade. But if you trigger your gun blade while blinded, you don't get the explosion. You still get the register of the correct trigger, but the explosion doesn't happen. I have no idea what this means in terms of the metaphor of what's actually happening in combat. It's just another way the game breaks it. It's fantastic. That's pretty curious. So Ape brought about a lot of new things, such as a slightly more active combat system. Not much more, but slightly more. Ape was the first Final Fantasy to get an Ultimania, which is a little strategy guide with lots of interesting interviews, lots of interesting bits of information, and some guides on how to do things in the game. There are a few very well hidden secrets that feel like they're made for a guide, and it's quite possible that they literally were, since Eight had a square published guide for it. Um, One of these great secrets is the deep research facility, which is on an unmarked location on your map that houses the most powerful GF in the game under an elaborate puzzle, but also Doom Train. Doom Train is a very odd summon that you collect by getting a variety of very rare magazines, all with obtuse hints on what you need to collect to conjure this summon to your team do you think you would have found doom train without looking up guides on the internet absolutely not the occult magazines themselves it should be worth it's worth noting here that there are four of them it's not easy to find them actually are there four or are there more of them four there are of them four, spe- I think. so four of them yeah they specifically refer to doom train they're not actually easy to find they are in and of themselves are hidden things to find, which are vague in their description, which point at another hidden thing to find. And then all the items you need are behind enemy drops, and it's not clear where those enemies are. One of the items is a Remedy Plus, which can only be gotten from refinement. You cannot buy that. You cannot buy it, that's true. It does allude to the fact that you can enhance them, though. Yeah, the the game has plenty of hidden guardian forces. In fact, you can finish the game with... Actually, we made a note here of three guardian forces. Do you not have to fight Cerberus? No, Cerberus is optional. You can just avoid him. Yeah, he's just in the middle of the... Yeah, you can finish the game with just your three starting guardian forces. And the game has 12? 12 or 14. There are 16 guardian forces in the game, only three of which are mandatory to finish the game. And most of them come from having draw equipped and you using draw on a boss which once you realize how the game works every boss fight will start with you checking but even then there are some hidden ones because norg holds leviathan however he only you're only able to draw leviathan from him when you destroy his outer casing so if you check norg at the beginning of the fight he won't have it he'll have it halfway through once you caused him to change phases I did not get Leviathan in my first playthrough precisely because of this. Neither did I. It was very sad. And Leviathan has a lot of very, very useful abilities. Extremely powerful and useful abilities, as almost all the Guardian Forces do. But there are lots that, if you didn't get, you wouldn't mind. Like, Pandemona offers very little that you'll obviously feel lacking other than a speed junction. Um, One of my little favorite abuses in the game is with a particular limit break. Your uh, martial artist, Zell has a very easy to abuse limit break that looks like it should be hard to abuse. In theory, when you use limit break, you get a little box on screen that has a number of commands. You input one of the commands, then brings you to use that ability, while another box appears that you then put in a command from that box. And you think that all of these boxes are random, but actually each move leads to a distinctly different box. And there are some moves that always lead to a box with the other move in it. And when you use that move, you go back to the first move. 
And so you can very easily loop these two moves over and over and over again to deal more damage than I think any other character can deal in a single single limit break. The other side to this is that you have a, a small amount of time that constantly ticks down as you're inputting the commands for the move you're trying to do. The moment you've input a command, the timer freezes. So I believe the maximum time he can have on a, the limit break is called dual. On a dual activation is, I want to say, 10 seconds. I think it's about 12, actually. Okay. But yeah, between 10 and 12 seconds. And because the moves are as quick as up, down, left, right, which are literally the two moves you're linking. There's actually many complex moves that you can choose. And if you play through his limit break properly, you're supposed to progress up through more interesting and complex moves. But it's there's this fun very dumb optimal solution that deals much much more damage than playing his limit break properly does and it feels very satisfying to be so psychic and just know the input before it comes on screen yeah so you're inputting things before you even see what they are on screen and i'm wrong it's not up down left right it's up down for one of them and i believe it's square circle for the other one so there are two combo sets i think so one is like Mark Punch and Booyah, and the other's like Heal Drop and something else, I think. But basically, two button inputs as opposed to reading and then putting in an input, which if you're reasonably fast, which I don't find myself very fast at this input, I think I got five inputs per second, so five rotations of Booyah to Mark Punch or whatever. Which, if you've got 10 seconds, that's 50 hits of about 5,000 5, damage. damage each. Criticals at which quad is... nine, it's a lot. It's a lot of damage. And of course, this is a pretty silly abuse, but like a lot of these, the things in 8 that are fun to use, it's just fun to break a system. And one of the things that makes 8, I think, memorable for a lot of people is everyone got to break the game somehow. Quite impressive how they managed to do it. One of my other favorite things, and I think it's a fun moment for many fans, is after you do your first big mission, the principal gives you a cursed item, a magic lamp, who has the item text, you should save your game before using it. When you use it, you get to fight a surprisingly powerful little boss, who will be one of the more important GFs that you ever collect in the game. But if you just use it when you first get it, which is not near a save point, there's a good chance that you'll just very quickly die. You do have the strength to fight him about the time you could get the opportunity to do so, but there's not a 100% chance that you will survive. How did you go through your first moment with this one? Did you accidentally use it too early? No, I did not. I, I followed instructions like a good little player, went to a save point, and then promptly died to Diablos. Yeah, I spent many attempts in my very first playthrough trying to defeat him. He's got just a few tricky moves that you might not be familiar with how they work and don't work quite according to other moves. This is the first time that you deal with gravity damage, which is always based on your maximum HP. It's based on your current HP. Based on your max HP would be much worse. For any, as an example, Demi is a magic that does 25% of the amount of HP you have currently. So if you are at 100 HP, you would take 25 damage down to 75 and so on and so forth. And so I always like that. I mean, like it's a nice sort of, it feels very unusual to have this just boss in a bottle to fight when you want it. Yeah, speaking of the r things that the game is willing to just leave hidden, you could choose to never fight Diablos if your first encounter goes badly with him. Because I'm sure most people will be tempted to see what's in it. You're expressly given this item. But if you just decide, oh, I don't want to fight that, you never need to. 
You never need to, although he does have Encounter None, which is possibly the most important ability in the game other than draw. Because as we said, leveling up is bad. And so experience is bad, so encounters are bad. And also, nobody really likes random encounters. Being able to control when you fight something is very useful. And the last of these like little two-sentence points as we've called them in our notes is a little localization choice that I think is a little bit interesting. So in the Japanese version, the sorceresses, as they're called, are known as majo, which we often translate as witch when we do these translations. But it sort of just means a lady of magic, which is a very broad term. But it often gets lumped in with this Western image of witch. And these sorceresses do refer to witch trials and things like they are very much set up to be a reference to these classical European witches. But the way they're dressed and the way they present themselves is much more regal. And so I think it's a really interesting localization choice to not use the go to word witch. It's sort of I don't rest with it super well because there are some clear allusions to that classical witch idea. But also, these characters don't match the classical idea of what a witch is. It's a very interesting, unusual middle ground. Localization is full of these kinds of decisions that just had to be made, and not necessarily made with all of the information ready for the localization team. So they're often put in spots that they just have to make a choice. And I think this is one of those situations where both choices can be read as wrong and both choices can be read as right. Like witches doesn't quite match up. Sorceresses miss out on a lot of interesting references that happen in the text. And it's just sort of a, it's an awkward situation translation wise. But I do think it's interesting as a little topic, but not one that fitted in with the rest of the episode. And I think those are our main like little points we wanted to talk about that didn't really fit in anywhere else. We could talk about this game for days and days, but we've probably... We could do a whole podcast series on this game. We've probably gone on for long enough. So in wrapping up, we're going to talk about a tweet we got from Gaijin Wata on Twitter. He wrote a nice long tweet for us that sort of encapsulates a lot of what we talked about today. So it's a nice, neat way to finish off. So he mentioned that he never really got a full grasp of the junction system when he first played the game. And I think it's a difficult system. It's not necessarily the most intuitive system. The metaphors don't work well. So it makes sense to not really get it. It's definitely a big point of contention. A lot of people point to that as a barrier for entry into the game. And yeah, you don't need to know it to get through the game. Many people have gotten through it without becoming an expert in the junction system. And that's completely fine. And it's one of the strengths that sort of you can dip into this as much as you want. He does comment, though, on talking about playing lots and lots of Triple Triad, which is very common for the game. And we spent a great deal of time talking about how Triple Triad is really interesting in the whole process. But he mentions that what he really liked is that that minigame is enhanced by how it integrates with character development specifically, which it makes the game have a lot more weight to it, that little minigame. And because there's a lot of hidden things in the game, like a lot of little nuanced details, he's in currently the process of playing it for a third time and really expanding these systems. And frankly, a lot of JRPGs don't stand up to a lot of repeat play because their systems usually are fully expanded upon by the time you finish them. And so it's interesting to note that he's enjoying it through playing the third time, only this time really understanding the systems he's going in for. And were there any other big notes? And I guess we also talked about possibly the best just 
self-contained section of the game, Ultimecia's Castle, which may have some claim to one of the best sections in a Final Fantasy ever. It just plays really well with expectations of what to, what's coming up, of putting the player on the back foot, forcing them to reevaluate how they're going to approach the entire encounter. And he also mentioned that, so a lot of people don't like the ending of the game and felt like a bit confused what happened. And I think that comes down to a bit of how I choose to communicate itself and that 8 doesn't feel the need to just say everything directly to the player. And I think that it may many ways makes the game less accessible but is also a strength saying everything about a plot can often make it less engaging leaving a player to think about the gaps between things is often more interesting and it does that with its plot maybe a little bit too much for some people and maybe it does that with its systems a little bit too much for some people but i think it's one of those things that helps a stay in people's minds and keep thinking on it all in all, Final Fantasy VIII is something that we could talk about for probably too long. I think we already have, actually. <laughs> yeah, probably. So I hope that at least you, the dear listener, have gotten something worthwhile out of this. That If at the very least you can understand our enthusiasm and happiness about this game, because I genuinely do just love this game. Yeah, I genuinely love this game, and I think that even though there are parts of it that are messy, there's so much that we can learn from this game that few RPGs have really replicated in the same way. And I'd really like to see more games try and draw out lessons from this than perhaps we've seen so far. And we also want to really thank those of you who sent tweets in. It was a bit of an experiment to our format about inviting extra comments and then integrating them throughout the episode. I'm not sure whether we've succeeded or not, but like Final Fantasy VIII, we tried and hopefully we communicated it clearly. Hopefully the break in format itself was interesting and enjoyable this is the first time we've done something like just look at one game in as much detail as we've done here and then it went overly long as well so let us know what you think share your thoughts with us and yes share your thoughts with us our next episode will be a bit of a look back through the past several episodes we've done addressing critiques with what we've talked about maybe addressing our own critiques that we've had with our 2020 hindsight so we'd really like to know what you've thought about the episodes so far and any questions that you have about them or the format or just anything that's cropped up so far in this first season of platforms and pitfalls we look forward to seeing you for the next season